Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader. Gotta say, EJ, this feels a little bit like ageism. Sticking me out in the sun. You get the nice shade. I'm frying. You're living the high life. Dude, it's that California blood. We got to keep you warm. It was 75 <laughs> degrees the other night, and you're like, I'm cold. I mean, yes, you had a fever, so you get a pass. But... I was going to say, I definitely had a fever. <laughs> you definitely had a fever. It's like 78 degrees, and you were shivering. So, yes, we put you in the sun. Man, you could still hear it in my voice. A little bit. Yeah. It's, but it's, you're, it's, it's a lot better it's, than it was. Oh, God, it's a lot better than it was. Um, yeah, talking Cowboys today, going to be going over a lot of the schematic nuances that we can expect to change from last year with a swap in offensive coordinator. Talk about the personnel changes, you know, go over 2022, but also kind of give a nice little preview of 2023 and what we expect. Uh, it's a very tough division. Cowboys are one of the reasons why it's a tough division. Yes. They're a good team last year. Still going to be a good team this year. Actually, great team this year. The only question is, how far will they go? Uh, January has been a little bit of a, a snake-bitten month in Dallas over the last few decades. Is this the year that finally changes? Talk about all that more on today's episode. And with that, Jay, Autumn, Anthony, roll the intro, please. Welcome back once again to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. Still up here in Chambers Bay in Washington with our little home and home. Uh, most of the way through the NFC East now uh, in our second to last week of this series. Talking about always one of the most controversial teams in the NFL, <laughs> even when they don't intend to be the Dallas Cowboys. They always get a lot of publicity, a lot of press. Uh, lots of folks say that's unwarranted. Look, Cowboys are going to sell tickets. Uh, they're going to sell ads. They are going to be in primetime games every year. Uh, say what you will about the America's team moniker. Doesn't really matter. Cowboys are going to be popular, whether it's in controversy or success. Last year, a little bit more success than controversy. This was a very good football team. Let's be honest, there were a lot of years there where, uh, <laughs> you know, there were five primetime games with the Cowboys and they were not easy watches. Last year was not one of those years. The Cowboys are legitimately extremely entertaining to watch. They're a deep team. They got star power all over the place. So, yeah, I'm good with them having five primetime games a year as long as their roster looks like this because I genuinely want to watch this team play as many times as I can. Uh, you know, saw them live a couple times last year. Uh, the second time I went was week 
two against the Bengals because I went to both of their uh, both of their home games back to back in week one and week two in Dallas. You came out for that Bengals game in week two, which they pulled out of their ass uh, with no Dak Prescott. Uh, you know, against a high-powered, you know, fully operational battle station that is the Cincinnati Bengals, and they still beat them. And that's how good this team is. That even without their starting quarterback, they took down one of the best teams in the AFC. Um, obviously, having Kellen Moore at OC helps a lot there, which they no longer have Kellen, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I think the point I'm trying to make here is it wasn't a fluke that they won 12 games. They could still very easily win 12 games again this year. And, in fact, I would not be surprised if they did. They kept it rolling last year. They they got that early win at home versus the Bengals and just really kind of cranked it up from there. 2022 overall results, 12-5 and five is the overall record, second in the division. Again, we'll talk about division power ranks in terms of our power score. Uh, spoiler alert, NFC East did real, real well. Yeah, <laughs> shocker. Home record eight and one, very solid hanging out there in Dallas. Road record four and four. Last five games, three and two, one more than they lost. That leads into our effectiveness summary, which is based on EPA per play. We talk about the rushing offense, passing offense, rushing defense, passing defense, points scored and points allowed. Rushing offense, really strong, 13th overall in the league. Passing offense, even better with that combination of Kellen Moore and Dak Prescott. All the receivers they have came in ninth, so top 10 passing offense as well. Rush defense, 13th. I think that was a little surprising for me. It was a little bit higher than I thought. Pass defense, third. Not surprising. They've got ass kickers. They've got probably one of the best pass rushers in the entire league up front and very good corners out back. Wasn't surprised by a top five pass defensive ranking for them. Points scored, third. This is a high-powered, high-octane offense, put up 467 points. Points allowed 342. That was good enough for sixth in the league. So great scoring offense, great scoring defense, both top 10, top five pass defense, top 10 passing offense, and the rushing offense and rush defense were both 13th. So top to bottom, end to end, however you want to look at it, this team was incredibly powerful and really well balanced. If you add up those six scores, divide you get our bootleg power score it is eight that is fourth overall in the entire league this was i think an even better team than people thought it might have been as a 12 and 5 team i think power score reflects that like you said tons of star power on both sides of the ball and they played up to it uh it's not one of those teams that we felt like underachieved this team i would say adequately achieved for all the personnel that they have assembled and Again, we've talked about it in other episodes this week. Coaches putting players in good positions to succeed. That happened here. Uh, it's not always been the case in Dallas, but it absolutely was in 2022. I want to emphasize something for Cowboys fans because I, I know when you look at EPA numbers that are that good in every single mm -hmm. category and you look at the record and you're like, how did this team not win a Super Bowl? There are other really good teams at the top of the NFC too. And even though the NFC is not as deep as the AFC, I would argue the top of the NFC is just as hard, if not harder, because the Cowboys had to deal with the Eagles in their own division. You know, they had to deal with the 49ers. And so, like, yeah, on paper, this this team should have made it farther and, and, you know, made a play for the conference championship, made a play for the Super Bowl even. But 
I, it's tough, man. If you're going up against the Eagles and 49ers, like it, any any one of these teams could have taken it, right? So I I want to I want to appreciate what the Cowboys were last year, acknowledge that they were a great team, and and really kind of lay that foundation of like I, I understand why it feels like a disappointment, but it really wasn't a disappointing season. Like they were great. They fell short, but they were great. Now that being said. I do think that personnel-wise, they got better this year, mm. which is not what I could have said last year. You know, last year we we kind of feel like because of the Randy Gregory debacle and you know some of the the financial moves that they had to make, we're kind of like, well, they're not worse, but we're not sure if they're better. Um, this offseason, I can confidently say like the roster is better this offseason, which for a twelve-win team is good news. Um, so I, I do think that they will be right back in the mix again to make a run potentially at the NFC Championship, maybe even potentially make a run at the Super Bowl. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is like Cowboys fans, it's okay to be it's okay to be disappointed thinking that, you know, maybe you wasted the year, but I don't think they wasted the year. I I think oh, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna say the magic words, the cursed words, I should say. But I don't think last year was the only window. I think this roster is built to be a multi-year window where they can get multiple swings at the plate. And to your point, if we're looking at our top five teams for bootleg power score, three or sorry, two, three, and four, 49ers, Eagles, and Cowboys with scores of six, seven, and eight. Yeah. So that top of the NFC that you're talking about, and look, there's only two teams every year. It is a very hard thing to do in the NFL, folks. It's the reason why people cherish championships is you can have a tremendously good football team hit a bad break in one game in a single elimination tournament like the NFL playoffs are, and that's it. It's over. And there are as many of those stories as there are teams in the NFL. Lots of times you have a very good team and you, quote unquote, should have won more. Bounces don't go your way at one point or another. And you don't end up in the game. And there's only two spots every year. Doesn't mean the Cowboys are a bad team. They weren't. They were a very good team, but they didn't get the ring. Let's see if they get another shot at it. Pulling all the schematic stats uh, to give a little bit of extra context to the EPA numbers, because as you know in this podcast, we don't just give you the EPA and leave it. <laughs> we, we tell you what they were running to get to those EPA numbers. Uh, we'll start off with kind of the, the overall coverage mix that they had uh, under Dan Quinn. Uh, again, this was a pass defense that was third in the NFL and EPA. And what they were running was, it's like it's sort of like the Pete Carroll Legion of Boom type defense that Dan Quinn was running with Pete in Seattle, but slightly flipped, right? Tweaked. Tweaked. So it's it's still a bunch of cover one, uh, you know, single high safety man coverage. Cover one, they were 14th in the NFL in that. They were 17th in cover three. So it's not like the Gus Bradley branch of that where it's like, yeah, cover three is the greatest thing since slight spread. We're going to call that all the time. Uh, they were lower in cover three, but very high in cover two, specifically Tampa two. Uh, which most NFL coaches these days, when they call cover two, it's Tampa two. Like they don't just call straight up like cover two, leaving a giant seam in the middle of the field, right? <laughs> Everybody runs Tampa two for cover two. Anyway, besides the point, they leaned a lot more into cover two, which if you watched my video on the relationship between cover three and Tampa two, 
Tampa 2 is literally just inverted cover 3. It's just a different way to get to roughly the same zone distribution. So while the Legion of Boomera defense in Seattle was mostly cover three rather than Tampa two, with Tampa two being more of an accent in Dallas last year, Dan Quinn kind of flipped it. Cover two, uh, they ran more uh, or more than most other teams uh, with cover three taking a little bit more of a backseat. So I, in terms of why they did that, my theory was they're trying to feed uh, interception opportunities to their corners. You know, instead of having them bail and play over the top of a receiver and, you know, put the cap on the receiver while having like a, you know, defender buzzing out underneath them, they'd rather the corners have a few more opportunities to, you know, trap guys in the flat, get interceptions in the flat, sink under corner routes, you know, playing flat and then kind of, you know, playing sail technique and sinking under it. Um, a lot of corners when they're in cover two just get more natural opportunities for ball production. And when you have Trayvon Diggs, who just got paid a boatload of money because he's good at getting the ball, you call more cover two because it gives them more chances. So that's kind of my general theory of uh, of how this defense operated, which is not a lot of quarters, 28th and quarters, 31st and quarter, quarter half, not doing much of that type of stuff um, and more focusing on cover two, cover one, and cover three and just letting our corners be good and go get the football. We talked about coaching, putting players in good positions to succeed. This is exactly that. Knowing who you have, what they can do, and saying you're more likely to get more of that if we flavor it this way, if we accent what is a base coverage this way. What do you think about that? Players saying, yeah, coach, put us in. We're ready to produce. Yeah. We're gonna. You put us in those spots. We're going to give you what you want, which is explosive plays on defense. And Dallas had a lot of those last year. Also, the fact that they were 13th in uh, run defense EPA despite playing so much cover two is genuinely impressive. Yes. Like, that's hard to do, you know. Um, and obviously, cover two is more of a third down call for them when they're not seeing as many runs. But there was plenty of, like, second and long situations where they were where they called cover two it's even numbers in the box. Somebody's got to make a play and stop this thing. And they did like, they just were good at getting off blocks. They were good at just making a play when they, when they needed to make a play, even when math was against them in the run game. So for them to still be a above average run defense EPA, despite playing so much cover two is like genuinely hard to do. Uh, just kind of goes to show how much talent they have looking at their blitz percentages. Um, this is again, uh, kind of a, an interesting mix for me because they brought in a lot on third and short. Mm-hmm. Typically they were trying to get in the backfield, trying to get tackles for loss on third and short. Um, and I have to imagine that the teams in their division influences quite a bit because they played against three teams that went for it on fourth and one a lot. So they're like, Hey, if it's still like, we, we can't, we, we can't tolerate just tackles for no gain. Look, we gotta we gotta push them off of fourth and one, mm-hmm. get them into fourth and three. So they brought pressure at the fifth highest rate uh, in the entire NFL on third and short. They brought it at the twelfth highest rate on third and medium. They were fairly blitz heavy between third and three and third and six. And then when they got to third and long, that's where they started <laughs> lowering that. You know, more rushing with four, letting Micah do his thing. Again, playing cover two, 
you know, putting a cap on top of the defense with the safeties, um, you know, playing just really suffocating zone coverage, trusting their guys to get there in under two and a half seconds and trying to bait quarterbacks into gifting them interceptions. And it's an interesting mix when you look at that and then you start to look at their stunt percentage as well, which was first. Their third down stunt percentage, first. So, yeah, they might rush with four, but they love their games up front. They love their twists. And, again, this is about knowing the personnel you have. Micah is one of the best movers as a pass rusher. He moves like nobody else. And when you've got those movement skills and you can run games to pull the offensive line one way or another and then have him attack where they aren't, you're going to do that more often. They did that with him and others. He wasn't the only one. But it's a very interesting, like, oh, short to medium? Yeah, we're pretty much we're going to blitz a lot. We're going to blitz plenty. Oh, third and long? No, we're not going to blitz very much. We're going to be in the bottom third of the league. We're going to sit back, cover, and try and get you into a mistake because we can still get home without a blitz. And I have to imagine that, you know, looking at the stunt percentage in particular, um, in terms of why that was so high, was because of Micah. Yes. Because, in particular, Micah can line up anywhere. So they would put him over the center, they put him over the guard, put him over the tackle, standing up, mind you. And you never knew exactly where he was going to loop to, you know, if he was going to be the the guy that was spiking and setting up the looper. Like, you never knew exactly where he was going to go. You just knew he wasn't going to stay in the gap that he was lined up in. (laughs) And so I I have to imagine that just the presence of Micah all by himself uh, was a a huge factor in that stunt percentage being so high. Uh, In terms of run concept frequency, kind of flipping over to the offense here, you know, looking at how their run game was structured. And keep in mind, this was under Kellen Moore. Uh, this is not under Brian Schottenheimer. So I this is almost certainly going to change at least a little bit. Um, but last year, they were fairly heavy in outside zone, in particular from you know 12 personnel and 13 personnel looks because they, if I recall correctly, they were like sixth in calling 12 and 13 personnel in the entire league. Like they use multiple tight ends a lot. Sure. And when they were in multiple tight end sets, they called outside zone a shitload. They also called counter a lot from that. They were 15th in the NFL from counter. Um, they called duo a lot from multiple tight end looks. They were 11th in that. It was really when they were in um, 11 personnel, meaning three wide receivers on the field, and they were in the gun. That's when they, they called more inside zone, which is why they're only 20th, is because when they could help it, they were multiple tight ends, big bodies, you know, run, 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 take a shot to CD. He's down there somewhere off play action. Like that, it, it, that's what I found so funny was like when Mike McCarthy was like, oh, I want to run the ball more uh, now that Kellen's gone. And it's like, bro, you ran the ball like a seventh lot. most in the NFL. Like, what are <laughs> we talking about here? Like, you, you put big bodies on the field and ran outside zone more than literally most of the league. So, yeah, I do feel like uh, Kellen was scapegoated for the wrong reasons because they ran the shit out of the ball last year, and they did it really, really well. Uh, again, like you said, they were 13th in rushing offense EPA. So they were a good run game, and uh, I think I think Brian Schottenheimer has some pretty big shoes to fill there. It was an odd shot to take with Kellen on his way out the door to say, uh, you know, I just didn't run enough. 
Oh, okay. Um, the run split's pretty interesting in terms of, again, outside zone, a little bit better than middle of the pack in 14th, but then you see that variance when they went inside. Inside zone, 20th, but the other runs we talk about, duo, uh, not power, but duo, counter, draw, pin and pull, all better than top half. Um, so they did have variety and, again, very talented, very powerful interior offensive line. So they had the choice to say, yeah, we're going to bring different looks that, again, at the snap, all look fairly similar, uh, keep you guessing on the inside and beat you up. And it's surprising that as much as they were able to do that and as well as they were able to do that, that their head coach would come out and say, ah, we just didn't do it enough. We need to do it more. Mike McCarthy blaming somebody that isn't him? No. He's never done that before. Oh, man. Bait. <laughs> nope, that's bait. I'm not going to take it. Looking at the passing offense overview, which, again, we also expect to probably change quite a bit under Brian Schottenheimer. Uh, last year, they leaned heavily into play action, which actually might be something that, that stays the same. Shotty's always been pretty heavy on play action. But they were 13th in that last year. They got the ball out fairly quickly, uh, whether it was Cooper Rush or Dak Prescott. They were the fifth fastest average time to release in the NFL at 2.64 seconds, which, considering how much play action they ran, means that when they weren't doing play action, if they were just in, like, you know, quick game, in the shotgun, go, 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 like, they were getting it out immediately. Like, that's the only way to still have uh, that low of an average time to throw despite being that high in play action is if your non-play action passing plays are lightning quick air yards percentage uh, they were eighth in the nfl in terms of their percentage of air yards that comes or percentage of passing yards that come through the air rather than after the catch at about 56 percent they were 11th in average depth of target at 9.3 uh, so again they they went deep quite frequently which kind of lines up with the play action uh, and also um to a degree, lines up with the average time to throw because there were a bunch of go balls that they threw, uh, like pretty much just catch it, throw it, CDs out there one-on-one, <laughs> you know, let him go adjust to it. So that, that actually all kind of lines up fairly easily together. Where What was kind of interesting to me was despite them going deep so much and despite them, you know, having a high EPA and, you know, getting a, a absolute massive amount of chunk plays you know a bunch of red zone appearances good in the red zone their big time throw percentage was 20th at 3.3 percent so i i'm not honestly i don't know why that actually genuinely <laughs> surprised me like maybe it was uh a, a dak versus rush thing and maybe if i separate out the games of dak starting versus cooper rush starting like maybe that number would start to make sense but i was genuinely surprised by that um Yards per attempt, they were dead average. The NFL at seven point two, which again isn't isn't bad. Also, isn't great. So, uh, just interesting numbers here, where you're like, okay, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is great. That's weird. <laughs> you know, one of these things is not like the other. And it's just it's just odd because when you see an offense be that effective, especially through the air, you don't expect. You don't expect their big time throw percentage to be so low, but it was. And I uh, honestly, I'll I'll have to dig through the tape to find out why. Because I going through it before during the season, I I didn't see an issue with them, you know, attacking vertically down the field. I mean, for God's sake, they're 
air yards percentage is high. Their ADOT's high. Like I, I don't know. There must be something I'm missing there. It's a fantastically interesting study. Also going from last year to this year because of the Kellen Moore to Brian Schottenheimer shift and because the receiving course turned over a little bit in terms of who's still on the roster. CD is going to be there, pure number one. Michael Gallup, hopefully I think another year removed from injury, comes back a little bit stronger. He had some up and down moments, but I really believe that Brandon Cooks as their second or third receiver, depending on how you're looking at that, is an upgrade. Brandon Cooks well-traveled is the only way to describe his career in the NFL, but he has been productive at every stop. 1,000 yards a year, pretty much just book it before the season even starts. And I think Dak's really going to enjoy having him there. It feels to me more like the receiving core they had before Cedric Wilson left when they had three really strong options, and that flummoxed a lot of defenses because who are you going to go after last year it felt like they could lean a little bit towards the weakest leg of the stool feels like this year might be a return but again we don't know what the balance is going to be in the passing game because of the shift at oc so all interesting things to track we don't think there's going to be a major drop off but we do expect to see some shifts and some differences because of all that change i do think that you know brandon cooks even though he is you know a little long in the tooth at this point He's still a good receiver, you know, good hands, great route runner, still has some vertical gas left in the tank. Uh, You know, again, he's not as fast as he used to be in his prime, but like he could still get down the field in a hurry. Um, And I think he's a great compliment to CD. You know, CD is somebody who I think that while he is great outside, I think where we really see him dominate is as a big slot you know, slot fades to CD are like just absolutely ridiculous in terms of their effectiveness. Um, you know, he's somebody who's fearless over the middle. Like, he can rip the seam open for you. Um, I I see him as, uh, as Michael Thomas, but with more juice, right? And I think that's what he can be if they just kind of leave him in the slot and let Brandon Cooks do do a lot of the outside receiver stuff. Again, not saying that CD can't play outside. He absolutely can. But I just think that he's always been maximized uh, when he's kind of given the entire field to work with, mm-hmm. you know, as a slot receiver that can go inside or outside, go vertical, or kind of do stuff with Yak. Like, when they really, really prioritize him, getting access to every blade of grass from the slot is is where I see him at his best. So uh, I think Cooks is a perfect complement to allow him to do that. And I, I genuinely hope that Schottenheimer realizes that because I know Kellen Moore would have. Seeing him as a power slot is, I think, the correct call. And we're just talking about players living their best lives. CD's best life is as a power slot inside, creating mismatches that – he, yes, can create on the outside, but doesn't create as often on the outside. And why wouldn't you want to put him in a position to create as many mismatches as he can as much of the time? And that's inside for him. Uh, let's get to the uh, power structure because we brought up Schottenheimer multiple times at this point and kind of go over what's the same and what's different. I mean, it is largely the same power structure for now. We'll see what happens at the end of this year. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot of results-based uh, solutions. <laughs> Trying to be <laughs> diplomatic about it here. 
That was what a- I'm trying to say is Dan Quinn stuck around for a reason, folks. Okay, he could have been a head coach somewhere by now if he really wanted to be, but I think uh, I think he knows that he might be a head coach in Dallas sooner rather than later. Anything's possible. We have to start at the top with the Cowboys. You always do. Owner, president, and general manager is Jerry Jones. Now, he doesn't have day-to-day personnel control. That's his son, Stephen Jones, who is the uh, chief operating officer, executive vice president, and director of player personnel, and has been handling those duties for a while now, and quite well, but you can't talk about the Cowboys without talking about Jerry first. Head coach, currently Mike McCarthy. (laughs) Currently Mike McCarthy. We'll see how long that lasts. The coordinators, offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer, of course, replaces the departed Kellen Moore, who moved on to the Chargers. D.C. Dan Quinn talked quite a bit about him during the schematic phase. Again, he had offers. He had um, interviews in the head coaching circuit. Um, Some of those apparently went pretty well. Could have moved on, like you said. Um, Is there something that says, hey, hang out for another year. I'll, I'll give you a shot here if things, you know, if we don't go deep into the playoffs or win the Super Bowl. Maybe he gets his brass ring staying put in Dallas. We'll see. And then in terms of experienced special teams coordinators, John Fossil is the special teams coordinator in Dallas, one of the most experienced in the entire league. So tons of experience on this staff. Uh, You know, some questions at the top, not necessarily in the front office, but certainly at the head coach spot. Mike McCarthy, I feel like, had a rebound year last year. There were many questions about his coaching competency two years ago. Last year, him going 12-5 and five and the Cowboys looking really strong, that oh, winning cures everything. Everything got real quiet for a year. It's just it's the game management stuff, man. He's just – when he has good coordinators under him yes. that, that handle the offense like Kellen did and, you know, Dan handles the defense, as a head coach, like your one job at that point is manage the game. Correct. And he still hasn't really gotten that, right? Uh and so I'm like, what else? What else are you doing here then, right? If you have all these good coordinators, and and the whole again, I just I'm I'm bitter because when he was throwing Kellen under the bus, as if Kellen was the problem, and it's like, what? What are we doing? What are we doing here? Well, you know? that's not very different than the Mike McCarthy uh, professional track so far. So he is if nothing, uh, not consistent. But other notable coaches on offense: Mike Solari, the offensive line coach, been coaching since nine. 19- 1976 with stops at seven colleges and 11 teams in the NFL was the OC and KC way back in 2006, 2007. And Scott Tolzien is the quarterback's coach and he's entering his third year with the Cowboys played for McCarthy in green Bay had a seven year career as an NFL backup after starting at Wisconsin uh, in college. These are always interesting players to me. And it is these journeyman types that tend to end up in the coaching ranks because they have a lot of different experiences with coaching styles, different schemes, different players that they've played with. They come in with a very sort of relational basis to the game and end up as QB coaches, uh, offensive assistants, offensive quality control coaches. Uh, It's just a very good, it's great on-the-job training to go be a backup quarterback, sometimes in multiple leagues. Scott Tolzien, no different, uh, ends up with a job under his old boss in Mike McCarthy, who is his new boss again. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. (laughs) On defense, special teams, uh, Aiden Dirted, the defensive line coach, one of the most interesting coaches in the entire league. Going to take a second and talk about him. We talked about him during this segment last year as well. Played linebacker for six years in NFL Europe. Became head of football development for the NFL UK 
including the International Pathway Program for foreign-born players, which has really taken off in the past few years. Became a Bill Walsh Diversity Coaching Fellowship participant with the Falcons, which is where he met Quinn. Then was a coaching intern with Dallas. Then was a defensive coordinator for the London Warriors for six seasons. So has a little coaching internship with Cowboys, ships back off to Europe, becomes a defensive coordinator, hones his own craft, returns to Dallas in 2021, six years after last being a coaching intern. His DL created the third most pressures in the NFL that year. Incredible path. That's just an amazing story. It's It really is. It is. If you want to talk about you know a football life, like sign this guy up. It would be a fascinating 30 or 60 minute show. Speaking of D-line coaches for Dallas, by the way, uh, boy, I I aged very rapidly when I saw Sharif Floyd <laughs> is his assistant defensive line coach. Uh, you know, first round pick of 2013. If he did not have a very unfortunate turn uh, with his health, God, it must have been five years ago now, something like that, um, he'd still be playing. Like, he was so explosive. He was so powerful. Like, he was just about to take that next step and be seen as, like, one of the preeminent interior defensive linemen in the entire league. And then, unfortunately, it just it all came crashing down. So I'm really happy to see him back in the league, at least as a coach, because um, I, I just I thought he was such a good player, such a good player. Uh, and then even younger, by the way, speaking of aging rapidly, uh, drafted – Three years after Sharif Floyd was Darian Thompson. Yep. Also on this staff, who I vividly remember coming out. He was a safety at Boise State. Yep. Um, is now a quality control and assistant linebackers coach for them. So, you know, they're bringing in, you know, a lot of young guys getting their first coaching jobs, uh, you know, underneath Dan Quinn there. So I absolutely love it for them. And I, and I love seeing it uh seeing you know players that that are trying to stay in the game that they love by coaching knowing that they can't play anymore um and just kind of seeing that that second life in football it's a it's a beautiful thing it's a fun staff al harris is also the db coach it's been the db DB coach in Dallas since 2020, 11 years of coaching experience already. That should make you feel old as well. After a 15-year NFL playing career, including an all-pro selection. So lots of experience, some young, some old, some from overseas. Really interesting and diverse coaching staff. And again, we're very, very successful last year. Uh, you know, a lot of people thought this team should go to the NFC Championship game. Didn't make it that far, but there you go. All right. Given all that information and context and uh, pretext, however you want to put it, <laughs> it's time to talk about uh, bootleggers' favorite topics ever. Tight end camp battles between former day two picks that uh, nobody even knows. That's Jake Ferguson and Luke Schoonmaker, or Schoonmaker, however you want to pronounce it. Either way, folks, doesn't matter to me. Uh, I, I've, I tried to get pronunciation before. Tried and failed. No so love. So if you happen to have a proper pronunciation, please let me know in the chat. Um, but yeah, this this is a camp battle that I'm paying very close attention to, selfishly, because of fantasy. Uh, I have drafted both of them in separate Dynasty leagues, so I have a vested interest in this. But, uh, you know, I've been doing my best ball drafts, and I always try to get value tight ends late. Uh, 
Ferguson's going as TE29. Schoonmaker and or Schoonmaker is going at TE37. Both of them have valid arguments based on skill sets to be the primary receiving tight end here. Mm -hmm. And one of the only things that I'm fairly confident in in terms of a carryover from Kellen Moore to Brian Schottenheimer is the use of 12 personnel packages, which means both these guys are probably going to field together a lot. So the question is, if you had to bet, who's lead dog? I would bet on Ferguson a year of experience. That's big for tight ends. Rookie tight ends typically struggle taking a year to adapt. Ferguson, I thought, was a very good fit. Slotted right in behind Dalton Schultz, who is a player I compared him to in the pre-draft process. So I felt like that was you know, almost planned succession if they didn't think they were going to be able to pay Dalton Schultz. So I would put him a little bit ahead. That's currently where he's being drafted. We'll see mid-season if that holds up. But at the beginning of the year, my money's on Ferguson. I'm probably just going to monitor it throughout preseason because uh, I still haven't made my decision. Um, I'm just kind of drafting them equally, like interspersing them through all my different <laughs> leagues so that I can be right no matter what. Uh, but as preseason goes on, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, and I don't even think there's a season long number for either of them underdog, by the way, because I think even underdogs, like, we don't, don't want know. any of that. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Um, they do have season long numbers for Brandon Cooks, uh, for Michael Gallup, and of course, CD. CD's season long proje- projections are freaking monstrous let me pull it up here uh 1150 receiving yards seven receiving touchdowns 95 and a half receptions so you can go higher or lower on any of those i the yardage i would probably go higher the touchdowns i don't know those are fickle uh the receptions i'd probably go lower but just a hair i could absolutely see him with 90 something receptions in this offense because he is the featured piece there's no real contest about that there's no real true challenger so they are going to feed him early and often and when that happens to a number one wide receiver on a you know prolific passing offense you end up with mid-90s receptions uh the cooks number they have right now is 775 as their number two Gallup is at 600 Hmm. so in 11 personnel obviously all three of those guys are going to be on the field together I don't feel strongly enough about either of the like. I don't see those as like a oh, got to jump on it. No, you know, like our old friend Calvin Ridley, who we talk about every single episode, uh, which is still, still, as the time recording this at eight seventy. Uh, Get to it, folks. Does not jump out to me like that. Uh, Tony Pollard is at a thousand twenty-five rushing, which, as long as they're not bringing Zeke back. Yeah, which I know there's been rumblings about that basically since like the week after he was released of like, oh, he'll be back. As long as they're not bringing Zeke back, that one seems like a pretty, pretty easy yes for me. And then uh, wrapping up with Dak, uh, you know, he's actually one of the few, <laughs> one of the few quarterbacks that is over uh, four thousand yards. There's looking at projections. He's at four thousand twenty-five. Uh, that you can go higher or lower on. 12 and a half interceptions you can go higher or lower on and uh, 26 and a half touchdowns so um, underdog at least is still very high on the Cowboys passing game I happen to be wait and see mode right now <laughs> because you know I not that I have anything against 
Brian Schottenheimer. I just happen to think that Kellen, again, is is very big shoes to fill. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to be investing anywhere, or at least trying to find value anywhere for these season-long pickups, it's probably either going to be on Tony's rushing yards or on like... I'd go Cooks over. <sighs> Barely. Barely, but, you know, if I... If I had to make one, I'm with you. Tony, for sure, seems like if he stays healthy, they are going to run the ball a lot. He's probably going to break that number, but I almost feel like it's going to be barely. Like if he, if you told me at the end of the year that he ended up with 1,100 yards, I'd be like rushing. I'd be like, yeah, because he's also going to get a bunch of passing yards. And if you told me at the end of the year that Brandon Cook's number was like 785 or like 805 for total yards, I'd be like, yeah, I sure. Mean, still pays the same, but yep. You're sweating it out till, till you last are. Week. There are no slam dunks in that category. Uh, by the way, Michael Gallup is going as wide receiver 61 in terms of drafts right now. Cooks is going at wide receiver 43. CD is obviously at wide receiver seven. So uh, it's pretty much if you're drafting a Cowboys receiver, you just bite the bullet and you take CD. And then if you can get Cooks late, go for it. But you know you you can't really be can't really be sneaky about the Cowboys passing game anymore. Not with as much success as they had last year, and that's the the price of being famous, right? The price of being really good is that you're not going to sneak one over on anybody like, oh, there's this receiver down in Dallas nobody knows about. Never going to be. Where's 88? Super subtle. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, again, if you you happen to find any of those to be a value, in your opinion, they're narrow values, I'll give you that. Uh, you can use promo code bootleg that will match your deposit up to $100. Whatever you happen to deposit, could be 10 could be 20 could be 50 could be 100 They will match that and give you an extra, uh, basically double your deposit to use on the site. You can use it on those uh, season-long pickums, either for the Cowboys or for somebody else that has better values. Cough, cough, Calvin Ridley. <laughs> or, or, or the Colts. Or the Texans, or you know, or any, lots of places. Basically, anybody but Dallas. Anybody but Dallas. Uh, so you could use it on that. You could use it on the the in season weekly pickums. You could use it on again best ball drafts. However you want to use it, it's up to you. Either way, you know, there's a hundred extra bucks waiting for you if you want it. So again, promo code bootleg over on Underdog Fantasy. Thank you to Underdog for sponsoring this show. And with that, EJ, let's get to free agency. Moving on to free agency. A lot of players left the Cowboys. How many notable players left the Cowboys? That number's not as big, but right up at the top of the list, Ezekiel Elliott moves on, still unsigned, as you said. There are some rumors he might return to Dallas. We'll see whether or not that happens, but longtime Cowboy, drafted by the Cowboys. A lot of people would say a franchise icon. When we were down in Dallas, we saw a ton of Ezekiel Elliott jerseys, longtime fan favorite. Not a Cowboy currently. Could be by the time they start up again, but currently isn't. Anthony Brown, the cornerback, played 63.6% of their snaps. He was 30. They let him move on as well. The other Anthony, Anthony Barr, the linebacker, played 53% of their snaps. He moves on. Connor McGovern, 76.8% of their snaps, is now a starter for the Bills. Dalton Schultz, the aforementioned Dalton Schultz, moves on to your Texans. One of the more underrated moves of the entire offseason, played against 70% of their snaps as the leading tight end for them in multiple tight end sets. Very good player. That one probably hurts more than, I would say, any of these others. And then Noah Brown, who was their third wide receiver, also moves on to the Texans. He played against 70% of their snaps, but they already have the plan to replace him 
with a former Texan, Brandon Cooks. As you said, nothing too major here other than Dalton Schultz. Not that they didn't have a plan to replace Dalton Schultz, but he's probably, uh, at this stage in their respective careers, probably the best player on this list. Um, before I get to who they re-signed or extended or you know basically just retained, I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, Zach Martin's holding out right now for a new contract. I think it was back in 2018 is when he signed his six-year deal. And he did them a solid because he made that contract long enough where they had a lot of room to play around with it, you know, kind of move money around. They used it as kind of like a piggy bank. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> and for a long time, and it, it got them through some years where they were up against it in the cap, and they needed his contract and its flexibility to get them through it while maintaining – you know, their standard for, for talent level on the roster. And uh, the Bills come due for that. You know, he is underpaid relative to the top of the guard market right now. He's still at the top of his game, even though he is in his early 30s at this point. You know, he's he's earned the raise that he is seeking and the guarantees that he is seeking. And, uh, and I do genuinely hope that they give it to him because were it not for his flexibility on his first contract extension, uh, they they would have been in a much larger world of hurt in previous off seasons. It does seem like this is the way it goes with players of note. Uh, they sign these big deals, give teams flexibility, allow them to convert bonuses into salary and lots of other financial machinations to basically make money when they need to to sign other players, to better the team, to extend other stars. And then when the player goes, hey, I've been given and given and given, time for you to give to me, they're like, hey, you signed a contract. And we hear that a lot. So I hope Zach Martin gets paid. He has been a stalwart for them both on and off the field. Would like to see him be able to continue uh, his Cowboys career in a satisfied way, in a way that he feels like he's being fairly compensated like you said, he more than deserves it. Let's hope it happens. Going back to those retentions, Tyron Smith had a pretty significant restructure, which included a $3 million signing bonus, a $3 million guaranteed base salary, but he can earn uh, about $9 million in playtime incentives and a $2 million playoff incentive, and that cleared $9.6 million in cap, which they desperately needed. So uh, basically it's a uh, Tyron, if you're on the field, you're getting paid. If you're not on the field, you're not getting paid. So stay healthy. <laughs> seems fair. Seems fair. Uh, Dante Fowler is back, uh, about a $3 million cap hit. Leighton Van Der Esch is back. Jonathan Hankins is back. Tony Pollard, obviously, is back on the tag. Terrence Steele is also back, which at $4.3 million seems an oddly low number for him. Uh, he's a very good player. If he was on the open market, he'd get a lot more than $4.3 million, in my opinion. Um, so good number for them for that. Uh, Donovan Wilson uh, also back at $7 million. So, um, so again, a lot of core players retained here at pretty reasonable money overall. Tony Pollard, or oddly, as a running back, is the most expensive one, but only because it's the franchise tag number for a running back. 
I'm with you on Terrence Steele. He's a devastating run blocker on the right side of that line. Just an absolute powerhouse. Another player who came on slowly after he was drafted with a lot of tools and has blossomed into one of the more devastating run blockers in the NFL. I can't imagine he wouldn't have gotten almost double that on the open market. So, yes, a sort of mysteriously low number for him. Uh, also, a quick shout-out to Alec Lindstrom, the center, and Wanya Thomas, the safety, both Tron Bowl alums who we met when we were down there in Las Vegas, uh, both signing and re-signing on one-year deals. Third-party additions in terms of who they brought in from the outside, either through trade or through free agency signings, anything of that nature. Uh, the two names that stick out the most, obviously, Stephon Gilmore, bringing him in at a $10 million number. You know, this is probably one of the last couple years where I think Gilmore is going to be a, a starting caliber player, just going historically off of, you know, when corners really fall off a cliff. Honestly, corners start falling off a cliff at his age that he's at right now, which is 33. Very rarely do they play, you know, starting caliber uh, past the age of 33. Hopefully he's one of the people that defies history and does it because uh, it's always nice to see old man corners out there. But uh, he's he's getting dangerously close to old man corner territory, so we wish him well. $10 million, still a pretty good number for him. Uh, and then, like we mentioned before, Brandon Cooks also at $10 million. Uh, You know, he is, believe it or not, younger than Stephon Gilmore by three years, even though it feels like he's been in the league forever. Yeah, if you asked me to guess his age, I would have put him at about 35, which is five <laughs> years more. I'm sure Brandon doesn't appreciate that, but one of those players that started young, produced immediately, and literally has produced every single year, which just makes it seem like he's been around longer. That brings us to the draft, uh, where you know I, I feel like I went against a lot of Cowboys fans on this particular topic, because after the draft, I said that the Cowboys were one of my favorite draft classes. And then I loved everything they did. And there was a lot of Cowboys fans that felt very underwhelmed by this class. And uh, so I would like to take a moment to disagree with them with every fiber of my being and say that this draft class is fucking awesome. I love it. Incredibly solid class. I think an underrated class, certainly an undername value class, starts off in round one at pick 26 with defensive lineman Mozzie Smith out of Michigan, who is an absolute freak show athletically, broke all kinds of strength and conditioning records at Michigan, is a real powerhouse, has to refine his game, but is going to allow them to do even more things with that defensive line, which was already super impactful, really creative, great at stunts. You know, you add a complete pocket collapse or like Mozzie Smith in the middle of that, and you can wreck a lot of offensive schemes right off the get-go. So I understand why they went after him there. Round two, pick 58. Talked about him a couple times already. Luke Schoonmaker, the tight end out of Michigan. I think he has good potential to develop into a starting caliber tight end, mid-pack or better. That's fairly high praise. There's a lot of talented tight ends in the league right now. He's got those skills. Is he there now? No. Does that make it a little bit early for me to pick him? Yeah, given this tight end class. But I have the feeling if they'd waited another round, he wouldn't have been there. So it's strike while the iron's hot if you want to get the player you want to get. Round three, pick 90. This is one of my favorite picks of the entire draft. DeMarvion Overshone out of Texas. Super rangy, fast linebacker. Made a lot of big plays at Texas, but I don't even feel like has scratched the surface yet. 
And if you're going to develop as a rangy, athletic, pass-rushing linebacker, go to Dallas. They know how to get the most out of you. Round four, pick 129, another one of my favorites, Viliami Fajoko, San Jose State. Some of the best hand use in this draft as a pass rusher. In fact, I think the best hand usage overall as any kind of a rusher in this draft. Not the fastest, certainly not the bendiest, but one of the most effective in all of college football last year. Was largely overlooked. We thought we were going to get a look at him at Shrine Bowl. He was basically being careful with a foot injury, so he didn't get that chance, but I think possibly an underrated gem that the Cowboys pick up in round four. Round five, pick 169, offensive tackle Asim Richards from North Carolina. Um, reminds me a little bit of Terrence Steele in that he is big, long, has a lot of tools, is not there yet, is going to take a few years. Cowboys seem to be one of the teams that has the patience to pay that off. Mm -hmm. So another good landing spot for him. Round six, pick 178. Cornerback Eric Scott Jr. out of Southern Miss, I didn't think he would last this long based on what we saw from him in the pre-draft process. Has a lot of length. Looks a lot like a lot of the Dallas corners right now. The Stephon Gilmore signing looks a lot better here. Eric Scott Jr. is going to be able to learn a lot from him. They share a lot of similar physical frame traits. Not saying they're the same player, but Scott Jr. was one of the corners, I think, who played better than his draft status and probably will outplay that draft status going forward. I feel pretty safe in that bet. The other pick in round six, pick 212, one of your favorites in the draft, running back Deuce Vaughn out of Kansas State. Absolutely electric. Yes, undersized, 5'6", five, 5'7"-ish, five, but... Did you see the... Sorry, not, not to interrupt, because uh, we're recording this like the first week of Cowboys camp. Did you see the clip of Deuce getting the rep in team period? I did. And how small he looks compared to everybody else. Anybody that followed his career in college knows what a playmaker he can be, but the reason he fell to round six is he just isn't that big. I would bet on him sticking in the league. There are certain short backs that just have that it factor... I think he's got it. We'll see over time. And their last pick in round seven, 244, wide receiver Jalen Brooks out of South Carolina. Oh, God, I love Deuce Vaughn. I, I really, I think he's a good player. I, I just think it's it's genuinely hilarious when you see somebody that short that also has the giant foam practice helmet on. It just looks like a sentient bobblehead kind of bobbing and weaving through the crowd of all these people that are like nine inches taller. It's just, it's a hilarious image. It really is. It has nothing to do with the fact that he's a, a, a great football player, which he is a great football player. Uh, but, God, he's small. <laughs> he's just so small. But, yeah, overall, I love this class. Mozzie Smith is a dude. Like, I think he, uh, I'm not saying he's going to be DJ Reader because DJ Reader is, like, such a high bar for me. But if if he's, like, 80% of DJ Reader, he's a Pro Bowl caliber. Pro, pro oh, my God, Brett. Pro Bowl caliber nose tackle there we go Sound you strung it, it together it's been a week folks 100 percent. it's been a week okay now i've got wasps coming after me dragonfly it's just oh washington hates me nature's attacking you <sighs> but uh demarvian overshone uh he, i don't know how many snaps he's gonna get as a rookie just because of who else they have in that linebacker group but i think over time we could potentially see him be a Deion Jones type for them, you know, a not undersized because modern linebackers are his size, but just kind of that lanky, silky, 
Mike linebacker that wins with quickness and instincts and everything like that. Uh, I think I think he could very easily be a Deion Jones type for them. Uh, Fahoko, like I said multiple times in the pre-job process, he's Pernell McPhee to me, which I mean that in the most complimentary possible way. Pernell McPhee was a badass, and I think Fahoko could very easily work his way into the rotation sooner rather than later here in Dallas. Just top to bottom, it's a great class. Like Asim Richards, like some of the games that Asim Richards had against the top ACC pass rushers, I was like, oh my god. Like, he just, he eats people alive, man. It's a great, great class. I loved everything they did. Uh, one of the strongest drafts, not just in the NFC, but in the NFL as a whole. And it was puzzling to me when, when Cowboys fans were not super smitten by it, because I was. I absolutely was. And I think that they're getting, you know, three, potentially up to f- four starters out of this, which is a really, really good rate there. Uh, in terms of undrafted free agents, they also brought in a bunch, uh, bunch of UDFAs that I really like. Uh, Miles Brooks, corner out of La Tech. We saw at Shrine Bowl. Big, feisty, aggressive, you know, rock'em, sock'em corner. He's absolutely their type because um, <laughs> they love size and physicality in the outside, especially with how much cover two they play. So great fit there. I think he's going to make the practice squad at minimum. Might compete for you know the last corner spot on the roster there on the 53 um tj bass uh i thought had a a potential draftable grade they got him a udfa you know could compete for a practice squad there princeton fant brother of noah uh tight end out of tennessee probably a practice squad uh jalen cropper i do not know if he'll make the 53 just because of the group that being said I would think very long and hard if I was Dallas about trying to slip him to the practice squad because somebody that fast with that good of deep ball tracking ability, somebody who's that good with the ball in their hands, you know, they would use him on jet sweeps at Fresno State and he would just get the edge and go. Um, He's somebody who I think has preseason highlight reel written all over him. I think he's going to be a big play threat throughout August. And I, if I was Dallas, I'd think long and hard before trying to slip into the practice squad because I think he'd get picked up somewhere. Really like Jalen Cropper. Grew on a lot of people throughout the process. Um, really thought he would get drafted because of that. They end up waiting, getting him for free. Earl Bostic Jr., the tackle from Kansas, another developmental lineman that they could take a shot on. Tyrus Wheat, an edge out of Mississippi State who is massive, just a big human being, can set the edge. And Isaiah Land, who made a big splash at the Senior Bowl as a pass rusher, linebacker edge, depending on how you think about his build out of Florida A&M. Another person that they can take with an athletic profile and say, hey, you're freakish. We got a bunch of those here. Pick up some things and see if you can work your way into it. Might not make the 53, but a lot of developmental potential, all for free for Dallas. That brings us to our final couple segments here, report card and then win ceiling and win floor. Uh, report card is we have four categories that we're grading here, front office performance, coaching staff, offensive talent, and defensive talent, and we're giving them one of three grades, up, down, or neutral. Again, neutral is not bad, it just means neutral. You know, They're maintaining what they had last year, and we are grading let's say the change or the the direction of movement 
relative to the end of last year. So where are we at in these four categories relative to the end of the 2022 season? Front office, they nailed it. And, uh, you know, Jerry is the GM, but he's not necessarily the personnel decision maker. And I mean that in a good way. (laughs) It's more Stephen and Will McClay, right, that, that handle all that. And they've been on fire. Honestly, they've been on fire. They deftly managed their cap issues that they were running up against. And even though there there were some things that didn't go their way over the last couple off seasons, the Randy Gregory thing, or Randy Gregory um, uh, loss was unfortunate. Um, but you know they've they've still managed to restock the shelves with good drafts. They've made some smart free agency decisions. Um, they learned from the Zeke contract in terms of how to spend smart. Uh, they've they've really done a, a nice job just kind of building this roster into a consistent contender over the last five years. So uh, more than willing to give them an upgrade here. Coaching staff, losing Kellen Moore, no other choice but to go down. Not that I don't like Brian Schottenheimer. I do. But... I think Kellen's on the fast track to be a head coach, and for a good reason. He's a damn good OC, and I really, really didn't like McCarthy throwing him under the bus because if, if you think Kellen Moore was the problem last year, you weren't paying attention. No, team was far too good on offense to heap blame at the feet of Kellen Moore. It felt very much to me like the old CIA game of blame the dead guy. Yeah. Right? He's not here, so it was his fault. Uh that wasn't the case. If you look at even the EPA play numbers that we started off the show with, saying that the offense was the reason this team didn't do some things is um, ill-founded. It's just not a great argument to make. Well, the argument that people were saying was like, oh, yeah, they ran the ball a lot, but they didn't run it situationally uh, at the right time when they, you know, they were passing the ball in the fourth quarter when they should have been running it and grinding out the clock. And I'm like, and I, I remember when people were giving me like specific games and I, I can't remember which one it was, but I looked it up and I did a video on it. Um, and if you look at the fronts that those teams were giving Dallas in the fourth quarter, they were literally saying, please run the ball. Please do it. You're going to get one yard. Right. And you're going to get second and nine instead of second and six, please run the ball. And there's every offense has this, by the way, this is not just a Kellen thing. But if you get a, like a free access for a four-yard gain on just a little flat route from the slot and you're in clock-killing mode, instead of running the ball against a front that you absolutely should not be running the ball in, you just give your, your slot receiver or whoever's over there a little glance or a nod or whatever your signal is. They run their flat route against leverage. They catch the ball. They go down in bounds. You get four yards, and you keep the clock running. And so that's what the Cowboys were doing a lot um, was throwing the ball for clock control in situations where they, quote-unquote, should have been running it, even though from a schematic perspective, running it into those fronts would have been a really stupid idea. So... I don't want to see the whole run-pass ratio in the fourth quarter as a reason why Kellen was the problem. No, Kellen was doing the right thing, which was giving his quarterback the tools to throw them 
into a clock controlling situation. And Dak, as much as I love Dak, and I also did this in the video, I pointed out three times where he made the wrong throw when Kellen literally set it up for him to control the clock with the pass game, with easy throws that gets him down in bounds, that still gets four to five yards, essentially, you know, extended handoffs of the pass game, and Dak didn't execute it. That's not Kellen's fault. Kellen designed it right. Quarterback fucked it up. So, no, miss me with that. It wasn't Kellen's issue. And McCarthy blaming him when quarterback didn't execute the offense is just kind of horseshit to me. Anyway, that's my piece on it. <laughs> Can't disagree, and it didn't sit well, not only with you, but with, I would say, half the Dallas fans, because half the Dallas fans are going to side with the head coach, and the other half are going to go, did, did you really watch? Did you look at that? Didn't look like that to me. And that's going to cause all the offseason arguments we see. We'll see. Uh, absence often makes the heart grow fonder. With Kellen not in the driver's seat for the offense next year or this year, this coming year, for the Cowboys, we'll see how much they think he was the problem or miss him Oh, they're going to see what he and Herbert do together. And they're going to find out. They're going to find out. Anyway, uh, offensive talent. They were good last year, still good this year. You could argue that the addition of Brandon Cooks warrants a slight little up arrow here, um, but I'm also factoring in Dalton Schultz. <laughs> you know, so uh, we'll just go neutral, which again is not bad. Just nope. means that they were good last year. They're good this year. Defensive talent, same thing. Overall defensive talent level is still great. Uh, and there's little tweaks here and there to position groups and depth charts and everything like that, but on the whole... The core is retained. They're still a great unit, uh, and they're they're still just going to absolutely buzzsaw their way uh, through offenses quite frequently this year. Very good. Stays very good on both offense and defense. Ceiling and floor. My ceiling for them is 11, uh, which, again, is primarily a function of the division that they're in. I think they're going to split with all three teams in the NFC East. Yes, including the Giants uh, and including... The commanders, like, I I get it on paper. The Cowboys are a better squad, but A, NFC East division games are always a war, and B, those two teams also got better. So I think that they get three losses just from the division by itself, and then you probably get another three losses at some point throughout the season outside of the division too. But uh, just because they're uh, an 11-win ceiling doesn't mean they can't go further in the playoffs than they went last year. It's just, again, an acknowledgement of what their schedule is and that you know other teams are, are paid to win too. And it's hard, very hard, to win 12 games in back-to-back -back years. And uh, I, I feel okay with putting the ceiling at 11 while also acknowledging that an 11-win team could, could actually get past the divisional round for once. Uh, now, my floor is 9. I think there would have to be some sort of catastrophic injury for them to um, be a losing team. And I say that because they took an injury to their starting quarterback last year and still won 12 games. So uh, it's a very narrow slice between 9 and 11. And I think that, you know, Cowboys fans should be happy about that. I'm, I'm projecting them to go back to the playoffs, and then we'll, we'll see from there. I'm one more on the ceiling. I'll stay at 12. Largely for the reason you mentioned, they played Sans Dak for a bunch of games last year. 
Cooper Rush did an admirable job, but he's not Dak. If Dak stays healthy, plays the entire year, an entire year of Tony Pollard getting sort of unmitigated RB1 reps, you know, the addition of Brandon Cooks as what I would say is a more effective second or third wide receiver, I'd say they could stay at that level of 12. It's very difficult to do, as you mentioned. It's no cakewalk. There's no guarantee. But I do think that is their ceiling if we're talking about pushing it. Floors, I'm with you at nine. Too much talent, too much coaching success. Even if the offense stumbles a little bit, the defense is going to be rock solid, keep them in games, maybe even score them a bunch of points. So I don't see them being a losing team. That sets the floor at nine for me as well. It's a good squad. It's a really, really good squad. Also, by the way, if you hadn't noticed, our camera's overheated, <laughs> so we're not we're not actually on camera right now. We'll probably put up just a nice little bootleg graphic to close this out, <laughs> but uh, we appreciate you guys listening and watching this entire week for NFC East. Uh, we appreciate you tolerating my, uh, my voice, which has been through the ringer this week because I got super sick on my flight out here. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with our NFC East predictions, predicting the division winner. Uh, predicting, I'm sorry, not tomorrow, Friday. What's tomorrow? Eagles. Eagles is tomorrow. Eagles tomorrow. Um, yeah, it's... Yep. <laughs> Let's do the time warp again. Oh, God, I'm so ready for this to be over. Okay. <laughs> for people that don't know, uh, we've been actively trying to record this Cowboys episode for two and a half hours, and we've run into so many problems. Um, all right, yeah, Eagles is tomorrow. NFC East is Friday, and then we got AFC East next week. Uh, EJ, let's let's go drink something stiff. I really need it. We should do that right now. Mm-hmm.